Hello and welcome to the Creative Coding Podcast. I'm Ian. I'm very lucky today to be joined by a special guest. It's Adam Saltzman, also known as Adam Atonic. He is the creator of Cannabolt and the Flixel Framework, and his latest game is Overland. Hi. Hello. How are you doing, dude? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> awesome. So I've introduced you, you see, so you don't have to. You didn't have to reel off some. Uh, self self aggrandizing description <laughs> dang it i had i had paragraphs i had paragraphs <laughs> prepared for the occasion cool man Alas. so i'm gonna get straight into it man i want to ask you about flixel first of all so what how did that come about how long ago was that now and and are you still working on it and what was the whole idea behind that project oh boy uh let's see so flixel probably got started right around um at least the Flash version started around 2007. Um, the roots of the project come from a kind of uh, a gamer. Uh, they didn't have the creative coding as like a, um, a concept was not like that wasn't like a phrase that people knew back in the 2000s. No. But there was a nice um, like real time programming framework that I uh, that was for C++ and OpenGL that I um, used for some projects uh, when I was at university in the early 2000s. Um, uh, but, what was that called? Uh, I don't remember, actually. I've been meaning to actually look it up. Um, but there was a handful of uh, ideas from that that informed a lot of the early ideas about Flixel, just the idea of being, um, for better or for worse, object-oriented and um, kind of uh, state-based in the sense that um, maybe it made sense for a game to put your main menu you know, code and your gameplay code in different files. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, in Flash, that was, uh, you know, any sort of structure that you would yeah, on code yeah, was no, like... It was yeah, the future. It's pretty, so. it pretty freeform. Um, but... I'll just summarize, um, sorry, for the audience, what, what sort of Flixel does. It, it replaces the built-in Flash renderer with a sort of bitmap-based renderer, which ended up being great for like sprite-based games and retro games. And uh, it had built-in things like pixel doubling, didn't it? Is that right? Um, yeah, basically, there was a thing. So... Um... There was a weird in-between stage where um, Flash couldn't. Flash didn't have bitmap level access for a long time. That was only something that happened with ActionScript three. Um, There's a bunch of weird Flash history behind that, but um, that was probably around 2007, I think. Uh, and I had done a test of the framework in Silverlight before this, um, perversely. Uh, <laughs> wow! But it was um, we had a, a contract job to make a little 2D game engine in Silverlight. Um, to distribute to um, C sharp programmers through the old like Dr. Dobbs journal, um, and uh, I had taken some uh, incomplete ideas from an old C plus plus Python OpenGL engine that was directly inspired by that stuff from university, and um, replicated my favorite parts of it in Silverlight, and then took a lot of the ideas from that over to Flash as soon as they added bitmap level access. And yeah, there was two things that let you. Bitmap level access was really nice for doing a bunch of things, but the main thing is you could um, treat it almost like, I didn't realize it at the time, but you could treat it almost like a shader where um, 
normally in Flash, every object is a unique object and it goes into something that I think is just called the display list. And the display list is a hierarchical matrix transformed thing. Um, not unlike OpenGL or a lot of other things, it doesn't have a, a ton of optimizations as far as batching and all that stuff. But um, for a vector renderer, it's like a really, especially in software, it's a really accomplished um, thing in a lot of ways. Mm. But um, if you're trying to draw a lot of sprites that are like two or three pixels wide each or something, um, uh, you're doing non-optional, just huge stacks of matrix transforms all the time. Uh, which is um, usually just totally unnecessary. And so you can kind of treat it like a shader. You can have a single flash object, which is your screen buffer, and you can just basically um, blit, or I think in um, ActionScript it was called copy pixel. You could just copy pixel rectangles of pixels from one graphic to another um, based on the states and positions of those things. Uh, and... Uh, as long as you were only doing a limited amount of rotation, it allowed you to draw maybe 10,000 objects to the screen instead of like 100. Um, yeah. And which so, for certain types of games is, is very useful. Yeah. I mean, and lots of games were made with Flixel, right? Like hundreds of games by lots of different people. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think um, thousands at this point. Okay. Um, wow. Do you know, uh, does it still have a big community around it or have people sort of moved on to other things? Um, I, th I think, so. I know some people are still developing in it. Um, there have been re relatively recent, um, you know, IGF nominee type games that um, are still built in it. And I still prototype in it. Uh, I have a MacBook Air with an old version of OS X and all it has is a little command line environment for doing Flixel sketches. And I really <laughs> like... Um, you haven't. You're not on board the Unity train or anything. Uh, Overland's in Unity, um, okay. but there's there are certain little. Um, uh, well, hopefully this isn't too deep of a tangent, but I think there are uh, there are types of experiments and things where writing a little bit of generative code is, I think. Um, uh, really, really different and lower friction than um, trying to uh, work the way that Unity wants you to work. Um, I mean, it's I guess it's pretty broadly known at this point, but if you're doing a game with a lot of static content, um, especially a 3D game with um, static content or static level designs and you place things around and all that stuff, um, uh, Unity is so insanely uh, easy to work with and easy to use. Um, hmm. If you're doing things that are randomly generated, it is um, it's pretty clumsy. You can you can bend it to your will. That's what we're doing with Overland. Um, is we are uh, bending a lot of things. Um, uh, but there's kind of a. Uh, there's a different process when you're just um, writing a little bit of code and seeing your game come out of that. Uh, that is a process that I really prefer for a lot of prototypes still. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And uh, so other than doing like the odd Flixel sketch, do you still use Flash at all? Or is that sort of not something you, you do much of? 
Uh, I think the last thing that we really shipped, I mean, we still maintain um, a Flash game called Capsule um, that's built in Flixel, um, or at least is using some Flixel stuff. Um, uh, and we still maintain, uh, uh, or I guess the, the things that we launched the most recently were the um, the movie player apps for Indie Game the Movie and Free to Play on Steam. Uh, and those are built in Flash. Ah, uh, cool. Um, are they like Adobe Air things or something? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think those are the last things uh, that we shipped in Flash here, um, which definitely makes me sad. Yeah, um, I mean, I was going to ask you, like, how sort of how much of a bummer did you find it when, you know, like Steve Jobs came out against Flash and there was a general uh, sort of. <laughs> I, I mean, I find it to be a pretty major, like, borderline existential bummer. I don't blame anyone. I know sure. why... I know why Flash was sent to live at a farm upstate. <laughs> and they're not wrong, but I'm still sad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, if, you, uh, if you go through the archives of... Uh like this podcast you can because it goes back five years you can pretty much chart like the demise on different episodes <laughs> like I'm, I'm sure we've got episodes that are like flash is definitely not dead and definitely not going anywhere and it's like oh no <laughs> yeah but that's I think, okay i mean technology moves yeah. on like and i think with age right you you sort of learn that actually like technologies will come and go but you have to sort of work, work out what you have I yeah. guess, that goes beyond just these technologies does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, and I think I do think too that the its demise was celebrated a little bit early, um, but yeah. yeah, I think it's I think it's I think it's done now. Um, <laughs> cool. Which, so I don't know. Yeah, I have, yeah. I have well, mixed feelings about for sure. Let's not linger on Flash then. Um, <laughs> so as well as being a programmer, you also are an artist. Is that fair to say? Um, it might be a, a slight exaggeration, but in I've I've shipped art in games before. <laughs> I really like your art, actually. I'm a huge fan of. Oh, thank of, you. Um, your art, like the stuff you did. Uh, so I mean, we can move on to Cannibal, I guess. So you you were the artist on Cannibal, right, as well as the programmer. Yeah. And yeah, so Cannibal that was a huge success, um, and pretty much invented like the endless runner genre. Uh, I don't think that would be yeah, an at, 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 at risk of offending like eleven people who are really obsessive about genre timelines, it's definitely <laughs> safest to say that it popularized the Endless Runner. But I, I think have... for a, a lot of game designers who have shipped Endless Runners in the last few years, I think Kenobalt was a a big influence for sure. Sure. I mean, had you seen things prior to it that that might have inspired you, or or did you just come up with the idea from? from nowhere um like i know that i played things that basically were endless runners um in the past um but they just weren't the things that i was thinking about um i think it was kind of a reinventing the wheel type of situation where i was mostly thinking about like super mario brothers one speed runs mm. um speedrunning and not it wasn't they weren't even doing streams yet but like eventually somebody would upload like a YouTube video of like uh, at a nerd convention somewhere, two people having like a side by side like Super Mario One race up on a stage or something. Yeah, and um, 
especially since it's a game that people know really well and the runs tend to be really, really short, like five minutes or something. Um, it's a really exciting competitive uh, racing game and the flow of those games was like the main, that was like the main Cannibalty feeling. It was like, uh, yeah, because uh, I guess if you're if you're like speed running Mario, you're basically holding down the right. Uh, it's basically a one button you're, game. You're you're holding down the the move button anyway, so yeah, it's really you're just your jumps that you're your timing and yeah you're I mean, there's occasionally thing. there's a little finesse in there for sure but it's mostly i think it's mostly about timing and, and for anyone listening who sort of doesn't know the game we're talking about it's the game that's like a black and white thing with a, a guy in a suit is running yeah. across skyscrapers and jumping through windows i think like even people who don't know it by name will, will sort of know this game sometimes um, sometimes <laughs> and so you that was in flash but then you also had an ios version at the same time right uh yeah we did basically a, a native-ish um port of it uh that only took a couple weeks because there's not a whole lot going on in that game that's um, crazy though how how did you do that how did you do the whole port in a couple of weeks were, were you did you already have so, sort of like c programming skills and and things like that um i remember in in those days like it was just much harder for indies um, to to work on iPhone stuff because you just needed a like a different set of skills that like most people were doing X and oh. A or Flash stuff and, and right 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 yeah skills. I had um, I had a bunch of background in C plus plus and OpenGL um, that initial port was done by a uh, uh, a former collaborator but um, uh, it was all based on um, uh, I had done a bunch of C++, OpenGL, um, like iOS demos uh, right. in the year before. We had released an I, uh, we had worked on an iOS game that came out in 2008 and around August, uh, and Cannibal came out in late, uh, I think October 2009. And I had been doing a bunch of uh, C and OpenGL work on the platform, and uh, a lot of the first Cannibal port was just. Um, Pretty pretty pedestrian like uh, Objective C and OpenGL code. Yeah. yeah, it was super neat though. So I mean, it's one of those ideas that like it, its simplicity is its beauty or whatever. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's very good. I mean, d did you find that like you knew what you were doing when you were designing it, or is it one of those things that just sort of came together uh, like by itself? Um, it was a little bit of both. Like it's it's such a small game that there's really only, um, there just weren't that many sort of um, decision points. I think the main thing, um, for me, there's like there's only like three or four like significant decisions that were made in the course of the whole project, which I thought was like a testament to my genius as a peerless game designer. Um, and I've since realized was just like wildly lucky. Um, but uh, there was basically, um, there were, there was a few concrete decisions. One was um, uh, uh, as far as like the feeling of the game or the gameplay, I really wanted to, um, I was trying to make something to spite Mirror's Edge. 
Um, okay. I was like really disappointed when with Mirror's Edge when it came out. Um, not with there were a lot of things that I loved about it, but um, I had built up these expectations about the gameplay, and I think the um, my, I I haven't actually I don't know if I've talked to any of the original developers, but I I really am strongly suspicious that the game was shipped like at least a year early, is what it feels like to me. Um, uh, but I was really disappointed with it, and I wanted to get all these like cool parkour moves into Cannibal, and at some point, um, it was really obvious that you'd be sacrificing a lot of that kind of speed run, that like vertiginous sense of speed, you would have to just throw in the garbage. Because hmm. um, there was no way to do both uh, with the tools that I had. Um, uh, so... Uh, there was a conscious decision to just throw a bunch of stuff away and just try and find the things that fit in with this sense of speed that I wanted to have really bad. Um, there was a decision at some point, um, with some input from another designer named Steve Swink, to um, put in those crates that kind of like slow you down um, and to rewrite the way that the uh, levels are generated to be more reactive to your current speed as opposed to some kind of overall... Um, kind of increasing difficulty ramp. Oh, I see. Um, so is every jump in Cannibal always possible or, or are there sometimes impossible ones? It's supposed to be. I think there are there may be one or two corner cases in some <laughs> of the ports because a, a lot of it is um, to try to keep the game feel as consistent as possible across different aspect ratios. There were mm -hmm. a bunch of weird... Um, there's a bunch of weird changes and I've tried to keep all the math safe but occasionally like a bug report will come in and i can't figure out if the players just made a bad decision or if actually it was like an impossible thing yeah um i think uh, we've got pretty close but yeah i mean is it does it use like a a fixed time step or is it like using uh yeah it's on fixed time step now um and most versions are running pretty happily at 60 frames um which is nice uh for a reflex based game that actually does matter a little yeah for sure no it definitely does um uh, cool yeah so kind of uh awesome and then so what happened to you after that was there i guess you were sort of famous for a bit in in the dev world at least um a little bit it was kind of dark it wasn't i'm gonna say it wasn't dark times like um like a lot of people, when they launch a thing, uh, they have some, uh, what do you call it, like postpartum kind of a thing, or uh, yeah. I mean, you just get the post-launch blues, I guess, right? Because yeah, there's post-launch blues, and then and... yeah, especially if it's a, um, the thing that I, um, the thing that was difficult for me, like one, like I really, really loved that, um, and still love that it. Uh, in the development community, it kind of opens doors. So uh, it was, we kind of got lucky, and Cannibal was also like the result of like years of thinking about minimalist games and doing little experimental things. And I'd done a, uh, an arcade game with similar structure called Gravity Hook like a year before. So it was kind mm -hmm. of like, um, I think it's kind of like that thing where like a band's first album is like really really good, but it's because like they've been working on it in their head for like ten years. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
So there was a little bit of that, and that that I think is okay um, because you know is a good album. So I got to meet lots of other musicians, basically, um, <laughs> which is great. But um, uh, you know, the way I look at it now is I think can part of Cannibal was was super lucky, but it also was something that was produced um, out of a kind of um, value system. So, like, Cannibal was a product of a process that we had been refining um, for a very long time, and it's it was successful enough that I um, consciously and otherwise replaced the process I was using with a new process that I had relatively arbitrarily extracted from the product, which is maybe like a really weird way of talking about this, but basically like um, post Cannibal, we started breaking, I started breaking a bunch of my own kind of quote unquote rules about game design and what to build and why, Hmm. um, because Cannibal had been successful, which meant that I was smart and right about everything kind of. I see. I mean, um, were you trying to recreate your success? Like, did you feel under pressure to... Yeah, like, literally all the time. <laughs> uh, for, like, two years. Um, and that's the wrong thing. Like, the way to... Re- I think in... I You know, I don't think there's any way to recreate that success because I think there were a bunch of other endless runners that were all kind of going to come out anyway. Hmm. Um, I think a timing was huge. Um and there were things with social media and some other things going on that yeah. all overlapped really nicely. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I definitely remember from when Cannibal first came out was the number of messages you would see going, I ran 200 meters before I hit a wall or something, right? It had these yeah, these generated messages and they were tweets or could you email them or something as well? I can't remember. Um, we had a couple of things. We had a whole thing set up, but initially... The idea was to um, to lean on Twitter, which was new-ish at the time. And this was 2009 or something like that. So Twitter had been around for a couple of years, probably. Um, and I think we were the... I don't know if we were actually the first game to ever, like, syndicate messages to Twitter. But I think we were the first... I think we were the first game to do it prominently. Yeah, I mean, it's the first... Thing that I remember seeing like that. I remember when yeah. Swords and Sorcery came out, maybe yeah, a short while yeah. after, there were loads of really weird tweets about that. Mm-hmm. I still never understood that game. I've never got past the first like two screens of it. <laughs> I just don't understand. Uh, it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, there's a lot of those things. So, like, I don't think there's any way, like, um, I don't think there's a way to replicate that success, really. Um, but I, I mean, think... you didn't, you, di- you weren't tempted to just knock out more like endless runners in no the same i mean style. It, it, had, it had done almost everything that i wanted it to um like if i was forced to make an endless runner today like i know what i would do i think and it would be kind of pretty similar to cannibal and cannibal was actually like a bunch of compromises on like a really want to make like a um the idea was to make a, a a sort of endless parkour game where you were being like chased out of a city that was flooding with water. And so it was going to be like a really, really dynamic platformer where you would be kind of have these like procedural surfing sections that you'd be climbing again to get up higher. And then you'd have to kind of like jump around on floating things. And um, it's just a technical nightmare. It was like so <laughs> totally impossible. Yeah. I mean, um, have, you, have you played, um, have you played Castle Rock? 
the level of Rayman Legends where it's like to Black oh, Betty, no. you know that one? No. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it. I think it, they, they'd obviously played um, Cannonball, I would say, but it just takes that idea of just running really fast away from things and just like amps it up to a ridiculous level, which they can do, obviously, because they've got like millions of dollars yeah. to spend on one level. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I, mean, I can feel... definitely... Oh, sorry, oh, sorry. go ahead. <laughs> no, you go first. Um, yeah, I was just saying, I think um, there are there are things about... Um, because the other the other weird thing about Cannonball, like the other thing that was like an actual discrete decision at the time, like there weren't a lot of this. A lot of it was like, this feels cool. Um, but like one of the dis- actual decisions was to display the game in a, like a super wide three to one aspect ratio. Mm, yeah, I remember. Um, yeah. Which is utterly incompatible with anything except a web browser, um, <laughs> basically. Um, but it's a feel that I like a lot. Um because uh, it messes with your perception of speed and it gives you like a pretty long look ahead distance still mm, it um, does yeah i mean if you i guess you could add the top and bottom in but then it wouldn't feel as fast it feels Somehow. slower it's super dumb our brains are so dumb <laughs> um, yeah i found this as a kid if you're like if you go on a skateboard and you stand up and you go along you feel like you're going one speed but then yeah. if you sit down on the skateboard you suddenly feel like you're going really fast. Yeah, yeah, and like a lot of like action movie cinematography is all about this, and um, you know, depth of field and uh, uh, your field of view are all things that like manipulate all your perceptions of speed. And so, um, uh, you know, a lot of this was trying to capture like uh, Wipeout XL, or I guess depending on where you're from, Wipeout XL or Wipeout 2097. Sure. Um, was a game that I was obsessed with for a really long time. And they just have this, like, it's basically a fisheye lens. It's a racing game with just the most uh, excessively wide field of view. Mm. And then everything else in the game has been designed to register and display clearly with that insane field of view. Yeah. Um, And it feels amazing it feels so cool and like i don't think it's like if you were like trying to project movement speed like real movement speed i don't think it's like the fastest racing game or anything like that but the um sensation of speed Mm -hmm. is uh almost perfect and most future wipeout games uh have uh gone with a lot more conservative camera uh, and they don't feel good anymore. No. Um, yeah, you need they, to feel fast. Yeah, and so wipe out. It's like Sonic you, is Sonic is the yeah. same way, right? If you have Sonic platforming yes. like Mario, it stops feeling like Sonic. Yeah, and it, and it all but it all has to do with this like this anchoring and repositioning around constraints. So, um uh I think those old wipeout games really really work because they're like, okay, well this is what feels really cool. Now we're going to design all of the tracks and weapons and signs and um, colors and everything is going to be designed to work even with this really extreme camera angle. Um, And uh, that I think is like the key step. So if you look at like a a game that's not out yet, um, but that I 
am just like enthralled by is Thumper. Okay, I don't know um, that one. Uh, if you look up videos, you'll totally know what I mean. But this is a game that has decided to. It's it's basically a rhythm game. Um, so like Guitar Hero or Amplitude or something like uh -huh. that. But they've decided that um, it's not a rhythm game about. Um, you know, it's not DDR style, which button do you press in which lane or whatever. Um, they've decided it's about something else. It's about this, like, sensation of speed and um, kind of, like, sensory violence or something. And they've stripped out everything in the game except for that. And it's got this, like, really extreme camera angle and these really bizarre kind of procedural backgrounds and this... Um, really intense kind of soundscape. I don't even know if you can call it a soundtrack exactly. Um, but everything, it's like they picked this one like super intense crystallized feeling and then everything in the game lives or dies around whether or not it supports that. Mm. Um, and I think it's a really, um, I think Devil Daggers is another recent example of this kind of like basic approach to making a thing. Yeah, that's um, a really neat looking game, actually, Devil Daggers. Yeah, and I think it. I, th I'm. I think Devil Daggers comes out of a sense of like, this is what I want. Is you know that you know that one really intense quake level. I just want that, mm. and I'm gonna get rid of everything else, including levels. <laughs> I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get rid of ammo. I'm gonna get rid of like no. There's no HUD at all. There's no like health bar. We're just gonna throw everything away, and we're just gonna have that feeling of you're about to something, um, and uh, interesting. It, it, like this isn't the only way to make games or anything, but I think when I really really like seeing designers do this because I think it tends to produce um, really memorable singular um, intense things because they have that degree of focus, and that yeah. was kind of Cannibal is very much like the. Uh, maybe slightly more casual mass market e version of that sort of school of design. So I don't know. Something sure. I like. I mean and it works well for indies as well because it you're you're not like making you know, you're you're not doing the cutscenes, you're not doing like all of the things that go around like a traditional linear story driven campaign type game. Yeah, and I think the the reason, at least in theory, is you don't need that because you are providing some kind of other value like you don't have to mm. worry about differentiating your like thumper doesn't have to worry about differentiating itself from anything else like if you see like if you see 30 seconds of thumper video with audio you will never ever mistake it for another game sure it thing. just is what it is and um double daggers i think has like a pretty strong identity that way too um uh, and, uh, I think when you do that, like I, at least for me, like, I think a lot of what a cutscene is, is there to, um, indicate a certain level of quality or to convey like a sense of size or a sense of scale or something like that. Um, and sometimes it's to tell a story, but I think, I don't know, this is getting very like media theory or whatever, but no, that's fine. Um, like I think. Like cutscenes, I think are a lot more like Marshall McLuhan than <laughs> like a normal, I guess, like consumer or journalist or whatever might 
might realize. Like, I think that cutscene is there to signal a lot of things, but like story isn't maybe necessarily the main one. Um, hmm. But you C- need to cinemat- cinematicness, I guess. Kind of, yeah, or like, or just bigness. Mm. Like, look how many, look how long our cutscenes are, or, um, uh, you know, and that, and I think if you're making a third-person action game with light RPG and crafting mechanics, uh, <laughs> like at some point you have to differentiate yourself sure. uh, from other games. Um, but yeah, I don't think I don't think Thumper has that problem. Uh, actually, so no, now I'm let's just get like, back to you, Adam. To yeah, sorry. Right, so yeah, so after Cannibal, the two years in the wilderness, and then <laughs> um, more or less. So, like something I've read that, um, from you before is that you do quite a lot of contract work. Yeah, and uh, sort of how have you found that experience? Uh, that was kind of how I got my start. Like, um, like we were talking about earlier, um, you know, even Flixel in some ways was kind of, uh, at least partially a byproduct of some contract work that we were doing. Um, contract work just started with, um, you know, not really knowing how to, uh, make my own stuff or sell my own stuff or any, or not, not recognizing that that was possible and not really seeing the steps to do that yet. Mm. Well, I think, um, I mean, but bear in mind, like in say mid 2000s, like no one, no one knew how to sell their own stuff really. Like it was just not easy to do. Yeah. We started in 2006 and there weren't a lot of examples for exactly how to do it. There was some kind of shady PayPal thing that you could do <laughs> even just mechanically to sell it. But then like, how do you find an audience? Why does anybody care about what you're building and stuff like that? Um, and just the raw technical demands of, um, producing something, um, uh, I think like, uh, playing cave story back in like 2005 ish was pretty devastating for me. It was like, Oh my gosh, like look what, Look what you can do, look what's possible. Yeah, you uh, see, I was never in on the whole cave story thing, you see. So Cave Story was like is often cited as like one of the first like indie games or modern indie games or games that made people want to make their own games, right? Yeah, but and like, I don't know if I don't sorry. know if I want to like put it on a pedestal exactly, but um part of it was like a you know, if you played that game at the right time, it would you know, it would have an impact on you, I think. And, um, and what was the difference? Because I've always seen, I mean, obviously being from the UK, you have a slightly different perspective on it because like we all grew up with like Spectrum and like the, right. like, we, like a, an indie scene, like right from as long as I can remember, like everyone made their own games and recorded them onto cassettes and stuff. And I guess it didn't seem as distant as maybe it did if you grew up in more of a video game culture where games just came from Japan, like fully made and... Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. Um yeah, I think it was I think it was a little it was a bunch of little things. Like one thing was at least in North America there was this just like ferocious curve where there were American indie games especially on PC for sure. I mean like um, Doom, Doom is like essentially an indie game, right? Yeah, and Ultima and um you know, uh, Railroad Tycoon and SimCity. And like, we have, like, we sort of had a culture for that, but 
you know, by the early 2000s, it was just like, um, you know, we were in the, like, the elevation of AAA or like the ascension of AAA was like so complete and like so overwhelming. Uh, mm. And the, the PlayStation 2 was um, so ubiquitous and sports games and casual games were like the primary like new audience drivers. And then there were um, just kind of like the first sort of spectacular games like uh, uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 and God of War and just these like just mammoth undertakings mm. um, that seem small now in like the post Assassin's <laughs> Creed days or whatever, sure. right? It's like, oh, God of War was adorable. Um, but at the time it was like anything but. It was like, oh my gosh, like 50 people like almost died making this. Um, and so uh, uh, Cave Story sort of like floating around the internet as a product of one person and uh, a thing that had a very cohesive aesthetic. Um, you know, gameplay-wise is kind of a Metroidvania, but the... Um, the setting felt kind of fresh and the art direction was very consistent and the music um, kind of added this whole uh, extra layer of depth to everything and it had this like sense of melancholy um, that was really appropriate to the little bits of story that you picked up. Um, and the gameplay was cool, like it was, it was good, it had exciting boss fights and funny moments um, and to encounter that as a whole thing, to suddenly just discover this thing and to be, um, to kind of marvel at it, not just, not, not out of like rose colored nostalgic glasses, cause it does look and feel a lot like a Super Nintendo game in a lot of ways, mm. um, but to just experience it fresh as a, uh, as a standalone game, uh, with a cohesive, aesthetic and a set of goals and it's accomplishing those goals um sure and uh, did you manage to get involved somehow with uh this game as well with cave story yeah we ended up i ended up working on um kind of upresing all the background art for the steam version okay um, so if you if you play cave story on steam in hd uh all the um in quote-unquote hd it's still uh, pixel art right yeah, it's still pixel art, and everything is just at um, double the resolution. Uh, okay. And all the literally all the background tiles in the game, um, I redrew. Uh, <laughs> was that a lot? I think it. It was pretty. It was pretty brutal because, like, I I don't know. I, I like um, I kind of learned about and how to do pixel art through um, a forum or message board called Pixelation. Uh, which was really formative and helpful for me, and it gave me kind of a um, a bunch of tools for producing, you know, lo-fi art that got a lot done and you could use in games. So it was great for that. Um, but it also that community had this sense of discipline, and that like if you're going to undertake pixel art, like pixel art is basically just art, except you're supposed to actually care about all the pixels and any given pixel in a finished piece of work should be the right color. Uh, and that's kind of all pixel art is. Mm. Um, it's sort of like a weird Zen thing. Um, 
So if you take all of the background art for an entire game and then you double it, it's actually four times as many pixels. Yeah. Um, and kind of going through and relatively obsessively um, trying to figure out what the original artist um, was going for and also if they had done work at higher detail, what how might it have looked? Um, (laughs) I don't know. I really wanted it to like, it was a weird job. I ended up, I originally took the job at like a, at, I think I got paid like $5 an hour or something. (laughs) Um, but, uh, I really wanted to do the work because the director of the project at the time was considering some other kind of automated systems for upresing the artwork. Uh, and it didn't look good. Um, so I was basically, I was like, I was like, let me work on this and I will work on this basically for free. But I (laughs) like you, please just let the original creator be the one who signs off on the art. And that's all I want. That's all I want. If it's going to go to steam, I want it to be faithful. Did the original creator do the, do the upres of the sprites and stuff? Uh, no, there was there were one or two other contractors who came on um, to work on the characters. And so, um, why why did they decide to upres it at all? Why not leave it how it was? Um, I think it ships with both options. Um, you can kind of toggle them on and off. I think it was another one of these sort of like value add things um, because Cave Story had been a free PC game oh, for so long. Um, you know, if you want to sell it, you kind of have to have an option Be for a... Because there's like an up-res yeah. soundtrack option, too. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, That's in real electric guitars. Kind of. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'm I'm not a, a super big fan of it, but... Uh, uh, but I've been... I've, I ended up being pretty happy uh, with the up artwork, and the only thing was there's... Um, as what happened in pixel art, when you increase the resolution of things, sometimes there are tile seams that really worked because of how low-res things were. Mm. It gets a little more abstract, and you can get a little more creative with tile placement. Yeah. And some of that stuff breaks down in a handful of places at the higher resolution, but otherwise, I think it ended up being pretty, pretty authentic... I think. I mean, what are your current thoughts on like pixel art? Do you still think? Do you think it's like been done now, or do you still think it's got legs? Like, is it just a style or out of many styles? Like, um, I think the thing. Uh, I I still love it. I think it's great. Um, a really good example of like, I mean, the the cave story of last year was totally Axiom Verge, mm. um, which was all made by one person hyper consistent aesthetic um really idiosyncratic art and sound that fit together perfectly it's incredibly low res pixel art as well though isn't it like it's yeah it's super low yeah and i think um i was i was actually turned off by it because i think as like as a practicing pixel artist or whatever i think that um you know there are choices in the art that i wouldn't have made uh, but when you actually pick up the game and play it and you see how all of the character design and the palette and the animation and the audio all fit together, I think it's actually really, um, 
really special. There just aren't that many games that are aesthetically consistent like that. Yeah. Um, I think and one, I, one of the I'm nice, really fond of it. One of the nice things about pixel art, I think, especially low res pixel art, is it it lets your imagination sort of fill in some of the some of the gaps, right? Yeah. Well, like that thing where you know the lower res the art gets, the more um, the more abstract it gets, and the more kind of creative you can get with the way that you kind of like. Um, cobble pieces together to kind of create a space. I think if uh, if you look at um, uh, Lauren Schmidt is working on a little kind of free project right now called Dungeon Decorator. Um, and it's a lot of like mostly one bit kind of abstract tiles. Uh, mm-hmm. And you can just create these um, really interesting, thoughtful spaces where you know, things aren't being used for what maybe you thought they would be used for, and your brain is still connecting all the dots and kind of creating a place out of that. And uh, I really, um, I really like that. And I don't think it should be underestimated as a way of like experiencing or digesting a thing. I think the the downside right now to pixel art is like purely um, an audience thing. I think yeah. if you're trying to, I think if you're trying to do commercial work, um, it's I think challenging to do a pixel art game that stands out because it's such, um, it's so practical, it's so communicative, it's communicative, it's so iconic, um, it has all these kind of powers of abstraction, it's relatively compared to a lot of other styles. Uh, cheap to produce it's expressive it has all of these strengths and because of that i think it's used a lot which is great and there are a lot of very pixel arty games that really do stand out and don't look like other things like sword and sorcery there's um what's it called rain world the thing with the slug cap yeah right whatever that is just gorgeous (laughs) um uh you know there are things like that that do stand out still um it, 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 but, I think it is harder to stand up now with a pixel art game just because the audience has, has seen that style done. But I mean, you could say the same things and it's probably true for, for like a AAA game. Like everyone has seen a muddy brown shooter now, right? So Yeah, and yet as long as you have some close-ups of a, like a 3D face that has a lot of visible pores, <laughs> like people still get pretty jazzed in the YouTube comments. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You, I don't think you can compare indie games with um, AAA games because in AAA games have a huge marketing budget, so they can create an element of demand themselves just by spending money. It's exactly the totally. same thing that mobile um, free-to-play games can do. Yeah, as an indie, like and generally we have like zero to a very small marketing budget like you just have to make something that just sticks by itself and that's a much much harder thing uh i I find i think it's really hard to um to manufacture if that makes sense so like um uh at least for me it feels like one of those things where Either it's going to happen or it isn't. Like either you have a kind of um, vision for how to pull off something that has a kind of visual high concept, hmm. um, or you just don't. Like I don't have a I don't have a system or process for like generating 
a style or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, refinement is a different thing. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, these are our basic ingredients, and we're going to kind of overlap them like this. But it feels like so many, not even just for me, like even the people that we collaborate with or the games that we look up to, um, it feels like either um, they kind of, it feels like you kind of stumble into a set of really potent kind of visual ingredients kind of early on, or you just do the best that you can. Mm. Yeah, so, um, I mean, okay, I think this is a good segue into uh, Night in the Woods, because mm. you guys are publishing Night in the Woods? Yeah. And that's a game that has just the most uniquest look, and it doesn't really seem like anything anyone's ever done before, right? In terms of a, a visual style. and Yeah, there's nothing like it in games. It is um, very reminiscent of the, um, the artist and co-creator style, though. Yeah. It's his his personal I I remember seeing um comments when the Kickstarter first launched before we were involved with the game at all uh of people going like wow one frame of that trailer and I knew this was a Scott Benson game. <laughs> um so yeah but that's like a uh sort of uh it's kind of like his own personal idiom that he's been refining for like a decade or something. Mm. And this is just the first time it's being brought to a game. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's just totally marvelous. Like, I don't know. Like, this is, I always get in a, like, a weird place here because we are technically the publishers of the game. Um, so, like, I don't know at what point does it get weird if I am, like, gushing about it. I mean, I if I if it was my game and you were the publisher, I would expect I would expect nothing less. <laughs> uh, it's just weird, like because we were like we were Kickstarter backers before we were uh, publishers on it. And so, how um, how did that come about then? Like, what what's your sort of role in the project, and and how did that happen? Um, it's been changing a little bit, but at least initially. Um, they were partway through the Kickstarter, and I had agreed to be a stretch goal for the Kickstarter, um, where I was going to design a little game uh, that you can play on the main character's laptop when you go back to a room at night. Oh, okay. Um, and I'm still doing that. We've actually finally started working on it, and it's getting pretty good. Um, that's kind of like every Monday we sit and do a little chunk of work on that. But... Um, Partway through the Kickstarter, Sony approached them, and it was kind of a wake-up call for all of the sort of, like, small business reality of producing, like, a medium to large size, uh, I think I can safely call it a large size indie game now, um, and uh, the at the time, the two main collaborators, uh, Scott Benson and Alec Holoka, both had companies of their own, but neither of them really wanted to they didn't really have the infrastructure for like shipping a game simul shipping on PC and console. Um, and so, uh, we kind of did have the infrastructure for that. So, uh, at some point, I think we just started talking. I think they, they asked us if we would, um, be interested in kind of like taking on this sort of like third pillar of just, communicating with consoles and working on schedules and trying to work out release dates and um, 
Sure, because you've got like QA, there's like certification, there's all of these things, Yeah, trying to figure out localization. And there's a whole, um, you know, behind the scenes, um, the consoles, uh, the big consoles and the big platforms have gotten a lot better at working with independent game developers, which is great. Um, But there are a lot of hoops for most of them still. Like we can put a game on itch.io in about four minutes, which Mm. is pretty awesome. It's closer to four months still for a lot of consoles. Um, yeah. So it's and, kind of and a different thing. Firewatch, they just launched, didn't they? Steam mm-hmm. and PS4 on the same like week. Yes. And they've had a time uh, they've had a time of it. So is that Yes. <laughs> is that making you slightly nervous or uh, I'm I'm pretty glad that we've got probably another six months of somebody banging on Unity's PS4 version in between now and launch. <laughs> um sure that's for sure but yeah. uh, i mean it's scary to do you have a fixed date for launch yet or or not yet uh we've got a window uh we have to kind of collaborate with sony to make sure that everything's cool on their end but it'll be in the fall um the cool thing is the the program on night in the woods alec is just very very good uh and we've had um the engine running at 60 frames with no hiccups on PS4 since, I don't know, for the last year or something. Right. Uh, so. That's good. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a really good first step. Yeah, that's um, awesome. Cool. So I think that's enough on Night in the Woods then. And let's just move on to Overland. So tell me about that. Uh, right. Um, uh, this is the other one where, like, technically it's a commercial project that we're publishing, but it's just like the. This is what I've been working on most of the time for a little over two years now. Um, almost two and a half years. Jesus. <laughs> um, Doesn't it go fast? Uh, yeah. So the, uh, the idea is it's a sort of a squad-based survival game. Um, XCOM meets Oregon Trail. It's kind of randomly generated. It's got, um, you know, permadeath and um, procedural level design and... It's kind of like improvised challenges and you're sort of um, meeting up and with and leaving behind different randomly generated characters on this road trip uh, across kind of post-apocalyptic North America. Um, and uh, it's yeah. been taken a while. It's not <laughs> my usual kind of, like there's a lot of things in this game that I think are very indicative of uh my interests and my tastes and also our art director heather penn has just had like a colossal influence on it but like the structure of the game is a lot more ambitious than my usual sort of mobile gamey i mean you've done a lot of things Uh, like arcade games and platformers in the past right and this is going to be a strategy game yeah and oh man i don't i don't know what we were thinking (laughs) <laughs> it's uh now I, uh, like i've got well not a theory but just one of the things i think about a lot it's just how much like in indie games the bar is just raised constantly yeah and like you look at stuff that came out a few years ago even and you go oh would that even be successful now right and you sort of look back on your own work and you go oh is this big enough i'm not making big enough things is is that part of sort of what overland's been like for you uh a little bit i think it's um 
there's definitely so that is totally a thing um the one thing that i think is kind of nice is um i think there have been some games that are a little more timeless i think something like fez is actually like pretty timeless um, I think if somebody picks up Fez in five or ten years, I don't think it's going to feel dated, and I don't think it's going to feel like someone has sort of surpassed it, really. Um, it's just so thoroughly realized. Mm. Um, I mean, but it's, then just, there are it's other... also just really unique in that like no one else would make that, like no one else would think to make that. Right? Yeah, and make and all I think the decisions it, that sort of go into it. Feels it feels like it has a pretty timeless art style. I can imagine a world in which, um, and this is a good thing. This is I, hopefully this doesn't sound bad, but I can imagine a world in which um, Gone Home is considered um, unsophisticated. Hmm. You see, now um, I played Gone Home for the first time about two months ago. And already I just noticed that like it just does not look realistic uh, in the rendering compared to other games. And I'm really enjoying the story and everything. But yeah, uh, I just think like I think they're exploring a space and a mode of storytelling that people are going to continue to do. And I think it's going to um, there's going to be a lot of kind of like backwards reflection where I think Gone Home will probably I hope will always kind of be recognized as like a. Uh, like a pioneering piece. Um, mm. What do they call it? Like a, a founder work, I think is what it would be called in like the art world. Um, but, uh, you know, I think um, people are going, people are finding ways of telling stories like that. And I can imagine it sort of getting eclipsed eventually. Um, but there are other things like Kentucky Route Zero is just going to be what it is forever. Um, I think, mm. um, I think it's just its thing, but for Overland, um, uh, you know, part of it is like, in some ways it's a tactical strategy game with randomly generated levels and permadeath. So are people going to stack it up against XCOM two? Cause sure. like maybe, and I would like to be able to offer, the kind of it's kind of a fine line like i mean we can't we can't compete with that we can offer sort of a different experience and where do we decide to put the time and effort and money in to um providing something that feels somehow uh I don't know what the exact right word is, analogous maybe, like uh, something that feels satisfying and generous in some of the same ways. Um, but obviously, like, we're not going to have normal mapped snake people. Um, <laughs> sure, I mean, but uh, you've gone for, it's quite a unique look, isn't it? It's, the, it's that sort of low poly, but nicely shaded look, right? Like untextured, but... Yeah, our art director has been finding all these like really weird fine lines where a little bit, little teeny bits of gradient and texture and um, lighting tweaks and all of these things are adding up to create a space that I think, um, that I think stands out and will only um, get more so as time goes on, which is really great. 
But the other thing, though, so uh, in the past, I think I have probably been a little bit guilty about being like obnoxious about minimalist game design. Um, obnoxious uh, in in what sense? Um, like you know, real games don't have all this clutter. Um, you know, minimalist games, game mechanics, like really like being like obnoxiously formalist and trying to like define what is minimalist game design mean and stuff like that. Um, actually like co-authored an academic paper that I think is like a fine like reference point for discussions and it's not excessively formalist, but, um, like okay. over time. Where can people find that? Oh, uh, I'm not sure. I think it's just called like. Uh, something or it's called minimalist game design uh, and it was uh, authored by Andy Nealon uh, and then I made some contributions and um, Eddie uh, Eddie Boxerman made some contributions also you worked on a really minimalist game didn't you called is it called hundreds yes and that's really cool. I recommend people go out and get that because oh, it's, thanks, yeah, it's super fun. Uh, and that's um, the the artist and creator of Hundreds is um, two time Apple Design Award winner. Uh, he did all the art for Ridiculous Fishing and for Threes. Um, he's a genius. Uh, it was so awesome to work with him. Um, but uh, but yeah, so the thing about I'll try to keep it as a short a tangent as I can, but like the thing about <laughs> minimalist game design... This show is design, all tangents, Adam, don't worry. <laughs> There's actually no thrust. Uh, like the thing about minimalist game design is you can hold the game in your head. You can see all the things that it's supposed to be. And so even a game that I think people would describe as mechanically light or even if they were feeling very snarky, non-interactive, like Kentucky Route Zero, which I think is a gross misunderstanding of how that game functions. I think in a lot of ways that's a minimalist game and you can hold its possibility space in your head pretty easily. Um, uh, this is in opposition to something like uh, an Assassin's Creed or a World of Warcraft or something like that, where, um, or even like a Dota or League of Legends, where you just have, in addition to some amount of depth, you have an enormous amount of like breadth. There's just uh, this massive uh, space, and it's actually really hard to hold that whole space in your head at once. And uh, as a designer, there is, um, I find that it is difficult, I found it very difficult on Overland to design the game to be as complete and as um, carefully considered because of how many moving pieces there are and how interconnected they are. Hmm. Um, so when you're making a genre piece, like, um, say you're like, well, I want to make Advance Wars, but it's going to be fantasy instead or something like that. <laughs> sure, um, that sounds great. I'm in, but okay. Right, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and instead of tanks, there's going to be elephants and blah, 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 blah. Um, like, you have all of this prior art that you can look at, and you can, uh, I think if you're if you're careful and you kind of take the right lessons from things, you can probably 
um, sort of take some shortcuts. But when you start to get into a space where you're designing slightly more exploratory or original or experimental or however you want to describe it, if you're not making something that is um, that strictly exists in a single genre or that has a lot of prior art, um, you know, Overland has things in common with XCOM, but there's almost no overlap in terms of, uh, uh, you know, technical lessons that we can draw from it. Um, we can look at high-level things about experience and um, empathy and stuff like that, but um, on the small scale, it's hard to grab any kind of specific thing. Mm. Are you going to have people shooting at short range and missing? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, there's no. There are no dice rolls on your oh, actions. Okay. Um, but we have to counterbalance that. There has to be some uncertainty. It turns out that uncertainty is a really important part of the experience. And so if you take away the uncertainty in committing to a player action, you have to bring it back somewhere else. And where mm. does that come in and how does that change how everything else is balanced? Um, and that's like kind of the design process. And the problem is, like we were talking about earlier, like on Cannibal, Cannibal had like, I wish I was exaggerating, but it consisted of, of about five decisions. Maybe. Um, oh, what was that beep? Oh, I don't know. That was something on my phone being weird. Oh, okay. I don't know what that was. No worries. Carry I had on. the ringer turned off. Um, uh, but yeah, like, like I wish, again, I wish I was exaggerating, but maybe five decisions, and that really shaped the game. And there were a bunch of minor decisions about, like, well, how fast should you go? So five big decisions, maybe 10 or 20 small decisions, and that was, like, most of the game. Um, so, like... On something like Overland, though, um, you can pick any little tiny part of the game. Let's say uh, the trunk of the car right. probably has, I would say, 50 significant decisions that are related to it. Decisions um, in terms of the things that you have to decide as the designer. Yeah, there are things that have to be considered... Um, as far as my goals as a designer, expectations players will bring to the game, uh, suspension of disbelief, the tightrope walk between things that you can identify and make assumptions about from the real world versus our kind of board gaming mechanics that help simplify the decision space for players. Um, Trunk of the Car probably has like 50 decisions, and there's like 500 other things and they're all interconnected and so like the um you know not every single hour of every single day since we started making overland has been primarily concerned with these considerations but um you know this is a game that is a thousand times or ten thousand times more complex than cannibal um and it's really, really hard to n not treat each of these tiny decisions with due consideration. Mm. Um, and yeah. so f I That's think so there's hard. like... And how many of you are working on this game? Yeah, well, it depends on the day, but like two and a half to three-ish... Yeah, I mean, two, two, two full time and three part time. I think like once you get into making something really big with a small team, you sort of realize why 
games have big teams now because it's just it's too much stuff for one person to think about right uh it's it's a lot and for better or for worse i think um this kind of game is so every design decision is so tightly tied to the programming um and this kind of comes back a little bit to like a flash versus unity type thing but um you know i think there's sort of like i i was just thinking about this earlier but part of the part of the, like the dream part of the the thing that unity sells you um and again like we've been we've been using unity for years we're using like all of finji's large scale projects which is about 5 right now are all on unity um and it's a solid platform it remains a solid platform there are long term concerns that I have about it, but whatever. Um, it's This isn't a slam at all, um, I guess is my point. But there is a thing going on where uh, the sort of, um, I guess I would say like the vision or the whatever, the, the fantasy of Unity is um, you write some code, you expose some variables, and then you enable your artists to become designers, in a sense. Mm. And uh, I think when it comes to things like shaders and animation, um, and even sometimes particle effects and some other things, to some extent, that's kind of a fantasy that uh, that they deliver on. Uh, and then there's a whole other thing where, and even as a, as, even as a programmer, part of this fantasy is like, well, you write your algorithm once and then you hit play in the editor, you tune your variables, um, while you are running around with your gamepad and voila, you know, get on with your life, get ready, get it, get out of this like code, compile, test, make notes, break code compile loop yeah and just like you know get in the flow man and yeah i mean steve swink has a whole chapter about that in uh in game field isn't he about like being able to tweak variables while you're playing your game so that you can yeah and it can it be tuned. really huge uh it can be such a huge advantage but at the same time um at least for me, like so much of game design and game feel and game rules and all of that are algorithmic changes. Um, they're changes to the structure of code. Um, they're things that you have to program. Mm. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, I mean, you need game design. I don't know, like it's as a as a game designer, like it definitely helps to be a programmer. Like it definitely helps to be able to implement the things yourself rather than like relying on someone else. Yeah, or even just being able to edit code and grab this thing and have it happen before this other thing, or, um, uh, you know, oh, this this loop that goes through and checks all these things in the background is you know, doing X, Y, and Z in the wrong order, or it's missing a comparison, or there's a logical error, or, or, or. Um, and those are things that change the balance of the game and change the rules of the game and all of that stuff. So, um, yeah. So 
When when are we going to see Overland then? When's this going to be released? Uh, uh, sort of throughout the year. Um, we're doing a bunch of kind of, um, I think, to some degree, non-traditional things with the release. And there's going to be a bunch of announcements about it pretty soon. But uh, either right before or right after GDC... Um, there will be some keys available to the public, um, but kind of by word of mouth only. Um, so we have a mailing list and there'll be some things that will, uh, become available through there pretty soon. Okay, cool. If pe- can um, people get on that mailing list? Yeah, it's right on the overlandgame.com. There's a sign up form halfway down the page. Cool. Um, and, and and on yeah. that is that where you can also find that video that you made where you sort of explain the game a bit. Yeah, there's a couple of videos on there. Um, you can go to my YouTube page, or you can go to the um, on the Overland website. If you click on the press kit, there's a handful of videos. Um, and the main video on there should be part of a YouTube playlist, also that has a handful of kind of basic explanatory videos. And I think we have a new. There's a new video up that just has like 15 minutes ish of gameplay from the um, the Pack South build. Um, so bunch of bunch of stuff out there for sure. That's cool. And so you go to a lot of these things like packs and stuff to to promote games. Uh, we've been we've been trying it out. Um, PlayStation Experience was our first consumer show um, a little over a year ago, and since then we've done. Um, RTX and Haven Con and PlayStation Experience again, and then we just did PAX South, uh, and we haven't done PAX East or Prime yet. And are they worth the time for you guys? Uh, and the money? They because, go. Like, s- I, I've read I like some postmortems from games where they spent like a lot of money promoting their game at like events and things like that, and then they ended up not selling like massive numbers of copies. And you think like <laughs> should have saved their money. Uh, I think it depends a lot on the game and what your goals are. Um, you know, one of our goals right now is just raising awareness and um, kind of familiarizing ourselves with uh, and getting used to sort of the existence of streaming. Um, that's kind of for, it's kind of a new thing for. Um, for our industry, and it's not something I've been mostly programming and not paying attention to it. Uh, and so it's been really good for us for that. I think for us, for our games, for our position and connections in the industry, I think, um, I don't know, I don't know how deep you want to go into it, but I think our strategy going forward is that these shows are worth it, but I think they're not. Um, our highest priority tier for our marketing budget. Um, And I don't know how much of this is due to uh, us being able to have some good connections with press based on our old projects and reputation and so on. But I think for our marketing budget, um, trailers and press tours, I think, are the biggest bang for buck. Is that that a press Um, tour? Is that where you go to... Like the yeah, you just kind of, a... yeah, you um, uh, 
we've we've been collaborating with a PR consultant and been having a really good experience with it. Um, and uh, they're helping us to uh, schedule appointments at um, various press offices. And um, you know, I think that process isn't something that PR consultant can magically do. Our reputation and past projects and the marketing materials we've been producing for the game so far are all feeding into that effort. Um, but yeah, they're helping us just schedule a bunch of appointments in a small window of time. And then we can go to um, a city and just go do those appointments. And, you know, it's not it's not free, but um, we know a lot of people so we can crash on somebody's couch and we end up having to pay for some food and plane tickets and uh, cab rides. Sure. And it's, it's a lot cheaper than a big show. Yeah. Um, I think something that we're probably going to... Something I'm thinking about really hard is instead of going to sh- going to these shows and setting up a booth, another option is to just go to the show and bring a powerful laptop um, because they're doing a lot of streaming from the floor. Um, so even if you don't have a booth set up, if you are just able to attend the show at all um, and be present on the exhibition floor, uh, potentially as a speaker potentially um, just as an attendee, um, it's a little less stressful, it's a lot less expensive, and if you bring some builds of your game and uh, some kind of beefy Windows laptop or whatever, um, uh, which you can get for the cost of renting a booth, um, and then just... you can be... You can do the streams, you can meet up with press, um, you can do uh, you know private showings in your hotel room, yeah. Um, you can kind of do the whole jam. So um, uh, I think for us, like, uh, as long as we're in a position where our marketing budget is limited, uh, we're leaning pretty hard toward focusing on that kind of approach. So either doing um, press tours or doing this kind of like attend the show and do press activity around the show but don't actually have a booth try to produce really good trailers, try to just invest more money in how the game looks, period, because that pays itself forward like a billion times, for better or for worse. Um, If you, you know, like, one of our marketing expenses is going to be getting somebody in to do a better job on um, this shader that we're using for the ground user interface elements. Um, Because if we do that, all of our screenshots are going to look 10 times better. And the game will actually look better. It'll look better in videos. It'll be easier to make trailers. Like, um, there's kind of a multiplier on that effort. So, um, I would say like making the game better is your biggest multiplier. Um, trailers and press tours, if you can set them up, are um, so worth it. Like, so massively worth it. Uh, and then um, attending cons but not doing a booth is a really good use of marketing money, I think, um, if I mean, you can line up press yeah. while you're there. Because if, you if, bo- if, if you have a booth, you have to man the booth as well, which actually limits your ability to yeah, um, talk um, to press. And... Uh, my wife Becca and I, we're the founders of, co-founders of Finji, and um, we've been co-running all of our booths. And um, at PAX South, I was just never at our booth. I just was doing press all day. Um, which is, I mean, it's a good problem to have, but then, um, Becca was running the booth and, uh, one of the, one of the easiest ways to pay back 
your booth is by selling keys for your games, but our um, two main games aren't out yet, or you sell merch. But if somebody's busy running the booth and talking to people and introducing the games, they can't really sell merch. So now you actually have to employ another person <laughs> to come work the booth, and you have to try to get their pay to break even out of the merch you're selling there too. Sure. So um, I think it can be done, but my like my inclination is if you're already doing all those really obviously advantageous things with your marketing budget, if you're making the game look and feel great, if you are um, kind of traveling around and getting good face-to-face -face time with press, if you're making, um, and trailers is even a term I would use loosely, if you're creating marketing materials that do a good job of communicating what your game is about, um, if you're doing all that stuff already and you have marketing money left over, I think booths are pretty awesome. It's really nice to meet like fans face-to-face -face and kind of make a personal connection with them. And it's really good as a designer to see your weird ephemeral digital work in the world and being consumed by a person and like seeing them react to it. Um, you know, just as a... Uh, recognition of significance or existence above and beyond all of the obvious like playtesting value and stuff like yeah. that. Um, you know, I think all those things are really good. And then just like reminding people that you exist, especially like, you know, um, Cannibal has been around for a while, but not everybody knows what our company is called or all the other things that we're up to right now. So, you know, I, I think it helps raise awareness. I just don't know if it's as good at those things as some of these other activities. Um, so I don't know. Sorry. That's a lot of things about show. It's like, it's been on our minds a lot because we've just started doing it. And we're trying to figure out if we should keep doing it. Um, yeah. I mean, the best thing and, is to speak at the conference because then you get a free ticket, you get loads of press. Yeah. If you can put together an interesting panel somewhere, I think that's a really, really good way to get to the show, to be present, to get access to press. Um, yeah, I have to say, to actually, I, I never price. enjoy um, I never enjoy panels at conferences. Yeah, because, a lot of people don't. It depends the, on the conference. I mean, stuff. the thing is, it's like when you do a panel, it's like you've got four people who basically like are not prepared. <laughs> yes, frequently. Like, I much prefer um, like a post mortem or something. I was watching the Skullgirls animator her po post mortem about oh, Skullgirls yeah. animation. So so good. So much good information. And like, obviously, massively promotes the game at the same time. So, yeah, Muriel's really awesome and has a really deep understanding of what she's doing. Um, and yeah, you can do that. And I mean, that's um, uh, I don't know. I think a lot of people aren't even sh like. I know when I started doing sort of speaking at game events, it was not. I did not have a clear understanding of like the goal of what I was doing or the role that it could serve or whatever. And um, I ended up backing off of public speaking for like three or four years and now have one talk that I'm doing. That I've done it a few different places that I've been working on for like three or four years. Okay. Uh, cool. Well, is there a video of that that we can see or not yet? Uh, there will be around GDC or right after... There's a real there's a version with really bad audio um, from when I gave it at the NYU Game Center a couple years ago, um, but it's an older version of the talk and the audio is really bad, um, and 
I did a version in South America, but I don't know if there's a video of that one. Um, but I just did a I just did a sort of mixed down version here in Austin, uh, and that video should be available in a couple weeks. Cool. Well, uh, we will look forward to watching that then. Um, we should probably wrap it up now. Is there anything you want to get in before you go? Anything you want to plug or anything you wish we talked about? Oh, hmm. Um, uh, I guess. Uh, uh, if I get a plug, I would say look out uh, after GDC. We're going to be launching a mobile game called Runaway Toad, um, which is kind of a, a sort of an endless runner. It's very like Alto's Adventures or Tiny Wings type of jam, um, but the uh, the gameplay is getting really really good. Um, it's by the creator of Splatters, which was an Xbox game, kind of physicsy shader heavy Xbox game from a little while ago. Uh, and all of the art is by um, a British-Israeli illustrator named Nina Limarev, and it's just peerless. Like it looks like an actual, like storybook in motion. It's just gorgeous. Um, I mean, we try to only kind of get behind and help things that we think look really special, um, and it it does. It's gorgeous. Um, and a power up is doing the audio, so it, I don't know. Everything about it aesthetically is just. Um, really marvelous um and that'll be out in like a month probably okay cool uh, i guess that's my plug cool and overland of course which is overland hyphen game is that right yeah overland hyphen game.com or you can find everything on finji.co everything is on there all the links to all the things um and hundreds is good go play hundreds and cannibal is good go play that do you still um do you still have to like maintain cannibal and things like that the iOS version. Yeah, it's actually it's on Apple TV now, um, and it's pretty. It feels pretty pretty nice on there. I hope people get Apple TVs. Overland would be so good on an Apple TV. And I don't know if there are more than like thirteen or fourteen Apple TVs out there. <laughs> I hope I hope people get into it. It's a it's a crazy beefy machine. Um, is Overland uh, going to be on mobile, or is that just going to be like desktop? Uh, we're going to be really really desktop focused for a while. Uh, I think um, there's a couple of UI humps that I have to get over still um, before we can bring it back to tablet. Um, the earliest prototypes were actually exclusively on tablet. Um, and I would love to bring it back there. And there's a lot of things about it that are designed to accommodate that aspect ratio, even if they can't, they don't really accommodate. It's not a short play sessions thing. Um, so in some ways it's not uh uh it's not a super ideal fit for mobile but it has little i don't know we'll see uh i really want it to come back there i think it would be cool but right now major desktop and probably console focus uh, yeah i mean and even in if you've made it in unity it's like not all the shaders work and things like that right when you try and just put something on mobile like yeah there's a couple of um we're trying to be careful about what we do and not um shoot ourselves in both feet over and over and over again if we can help it um but uh there'll be some things <laughs> okay adam it's been uh absolutely fascinating talking with you thank you so much thank you this is great maybe come back on uh, after overland launches um that would be great i would love to uh 
I will happily stand by all of our theories, whether they <laughs> succeed or like go down in a fireball. Awesome. Thanks so much then. Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to the Creative Coding Podcast. All our episodes are made possible by the generosity of our Patreon supporters. You can find the link to our Patreon by visiting ccpod.co or you can go to patreon.com slash creative coding. If you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, that helps other people find the show. And why not subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. 